0: Good afternoon, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from the Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the magnificent inland Pacific Northwest of the United States of America. Today is the 18th of August, 2020. We've been talking about T cells and the activation and sometimes the suppression of T cells in the acquired immune response. In the aggregate, and then we discuss specifically T helper, also known as T effector cells, T-suppressor, also known as T-regulatory or T-reg cells, as well as other classes of T lymphocytes, which include natural killer cells, and then a whole series of CD8-positive cells, which carry out functions similar to the CD4-positive lineage, uh, but that have different targets uh, as um, uh, inhibiting the disease sequelae. Now, we talked we about T cells quite a bit, really, for the last several months. Uh, off and on, I spent many, many uh, lectures on talking about autoimmune diseases. And ultimately, that led us through the innate and then the acquired immune response. We did talk about T and B cell, um, not only how they function in autoimmunity, but the metabolism within those cells. So that's where we are now. Remember, this is all a part of a really large arc of lectures, but I've been doing now for I think about a month and this has to do with aging, both cellular aging known as senescence. That's one of the cellular fates as opposed to say, uh, autophagy or tumor or apoptosis being three other possible fates for cell lineages. So senescence is unique in that basically the cells stop dividing because they run out of the appropriate genetic material that they can get to a point in the cell cycle to carry out a division. And so many of the factors involved in cell division uh, and and that aspect of cell cycle uh, uh, movement through the various phases is actually linked to metabolism. And we talked about utilization of bioenergetic compounds like fatty acids versus carbohydrate and amino acids. And then we started talking about how covalent modification of proteins Particularly, the prenylation of proteins that you find in the membrane, and particularly proteins associated with GTPase activity, which are signaling um, enzymes within the plasma membrane that signal from exterior to interior. And in the in the presence of this occurring in a T cell lineage, what you get is typically activation because of ligand binding. And the ligands on T cells, of course, are antigen presentation from APC cells, the antigen presenting cells. Uh, That's at least one motif that T cells function. Of course, they interact with B cells as well. Um, So that's what I'm going to try. That's where we were talking about cholesterol biosynthesis. It's also known um, as cholesterologenesis. And if you want to know about the specific pathway we call it the MVA pathway, uh, mevalonic acid pathway. That's because it's the first stable intermediate along the way to synthesize all the isoprene um, lipids. Start, remember, isoprene is a C5 unit. Uh, and so you start from C5 units and you build up from there. So we talked about farnesyl, and then when you make a pyrophosphate ester of farnesyl, which is C15 isoprene lipid, that is a substrate for farnesylation of proteins Remember, at the carboxy terminus uh, after carboxymethylation on specific CAAX amino acid residues on the uh, carboxy terminus of uh, proteins that are destined to get farnesylated, And remember that that can then introduce that protein as an interdigitating protein into the plasma membrane. And when that happens, it allows for the, that uh, enzyme or that uh, complex to interact with what's going on extracellularly to transduce the signal across the plasma membrane. And so, having a foreign oscillation, a covalent modification like that or the carboxy terminus for protein, like a GTPase, like a Rho GTPase, for example, will allow that part to be fully functional within that plasma membrane. We also talked about another far, another prenylation. So prenylation would be, again, the generic term, farnesolation is specific because it's C15. We talked about one other one and that was geronyl-geronylation. And a geranyl is a C10 isoprene compound, isoprenoid. And so when you have two C10s combined together, you have a geronyl-geronyl. And the substrate for geronyl-geronylation of proteins is GGPP, right? geronyl pyrophosphate. So that's a highly energized compound because it has two uh, anhydride phosphate bonds. And so that allows it to be a good substrate for uh, the covalent addition reaction to a protein carboxy terminus that it functions in terms of the logistics of the enzyme activity. So you have pharosyltransferases and you have transferases, And we talked about the activation of those proteins in terms of how you synthesize not only the intermediates in cholesterol genesis being the C15, C20 moieties, but also how bioenergetics is shifted using glutamine as a carbon source cytosolically to synthesize citrate. Um, and then that citrate, of course, uh, goes through ATP citrate lyase reaction, generating acetyl-CoA, which goes on to make the prenolipids and also fatty acids, by the way, via the fatty, the fatty acid synthesis pathway. So that's using amino acids, but you can also, of course, get citrate from TCA cycle, Uh, And we went through all the bioenergetics of that. So that's where we are now. And now I'm going to talk more in depth about the metabolism inside the T cell. So all of that was just getting us to where we need to be. Now, last time I left you with a kind of um, very serious discussion about how we were able to um, activate T cells and how this protein A post-translational protein prenylation had a lot to do with how T cells are activated. Now I'm going to tell you about the details within those T cells. The paper published in Frontiers of Pharmacology on the 17th of March of this year, that's 2020, the following can be determined. The sterile response element binding proteins act as transcriptional factors that network multiple biochemical signals, including the control over such phenomena as endoplasmic reticulum stress, and then inflammation, autophagy, and indeed programmed cell death in the form of apoptosis. So SREBPs, those response element proteins, those transcription factors, contribute to the pathogenesis, actually, of a lot of diseases uh, type two diabetes, um, fatty liver disease and chronic kidney disease to name three. Uh, there are also, uh, SREBPs and how they act as transcription factors within cells is also associated with neurodegeneration and diseases that are, that are linked to neurodegeneration in the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system, uh, cancers, and also a whole host of other metabolic diseases some of which are genetically inherited. So these SREBPs are membrane bound transcription factors, and they're involved in, in a general sense, lipid homeostasis. There are three forms of these transcription factors. There's There's SREBP1A, 1C, and 2, and they're encoded by two different genes, the SREBP1A and the 1C, and they originate from different promoters, of The sterile regulatory element binding transcription factor, which is SREBF1 gene, where the P2 is derived from the BF2, for example. So the SREBP1A stimulates the progenesis of proliferating cells, and the 1C form regulates fatty acid and triacylglycerol synthesis in lipogenic organs, such as the adipose and, of course, the liver. So SREBP2 regulates specifically sterile biosynthesis, okay? So that's a really brief overview. Now let's get into more detail. The SREBPs are helix, loop, helix, LZ, that is leucine zipper transcription factors. So And they're basic proteins. So we call them BHLH-LZ, basic helix, loop, helix. Helix, leucine, zipper transcription factors. It's how they bind to the DNA. And they're translated as inactive precursors, and they're usually bound to the NFS particular membrane. Each precursor is organized into three domains an N terminal domain that contains a trans activation domain, which is a region rich in serine and proline, and then the BHLHLZ region for DNA binding. It's also the location for dimerization, which is necessary for full activation of the transcriptional act- activity. And then there are two hydrophobic transmembrane segments projected into the ER lumen. And finally there's a carboxy terminal domain that gives you the basic structure of the protein. So in the non-stimulated state, you get, what you obtain is our carboxy terminal domain of the SREBP binding to an SREBP cleavage activating Protein, Okay. That's called the scap and that's in the ER membrane. Now that SREBP scap complex, two proteins together in the ER membrane, they interact with an insulin induced gene, one protein called INSIG one and INSIG two. And in the presence of high cellular cholesterol, and in fact, oxycholesterol, which is oxidized form of cholesterol, the INSIGs become stable and they bind to that SREBP SCAP complex. They create that complex that is retained, held in the R ER membrane. When the level of sterols decrease in all the membranes in a given cell, the INSIGs are ubiquitinylated by an associated E3 ligase. And then they become, INSIG becomes rapidly degraded. Now you might guess what happens there. When you get rid of the INSIG, now you're going to be able to start mobilizing the SREPP. That's exactly what's going to happen. So meanwhile, while that's happening, when you got rid of the INSIG, because the level of sterol has been diminished in the cell, the proteolytic activation of SREPP1 is induced by insulin and high glucose, and indeed it is inhibited by polyunsaturated fatty acids. The fine saturated fatty acids, remember, are not the normal pre-products uh, of de novo fatty acid synthesis. They are, in fact, the products of elongation of fatty acids, either dietary or de novo synthesized, and not the elongation with desaturation, right? And so a lot of those reactions are occurring indeed in the endoplasmic reticulum, the peroxisome, and the mitochondrial membranes, and a little bit even in the Golgi apparatus. <clears throat> So insulin-induced AKT activation has been shown to decrease the INSIG2 protein pool. And that results in increased ER to Golgi transport of the SCAP, SREBP1C complex, wherein the SCAP escorts the SREBP insertion on the ER transport vesicle containing a COP2 or COP2 vesicle coprotein. The SREBP scap complex is then transported to the Golgi. So it goes to the ER to the Golgi because it's interaction with COP2 from which a vesicle protein. all of that then makes it to the Golgi. And where the ER luminal loop originally of the SREBP is initially cleaved by a site one protease or SIP. Or S1P, which is a membrane bound, yes, indeed, serine protease. We talked a lot about serine proteases. Remember the serine protease inhibitors, right? So, subsequent to cleavage by site 2 proteases, which is again a serine type 2 protease, but now you're going to have another isoform of it, a zinc metalloprotease generates a transcriptionally active. N-terminal domain, which then gets translocated to the nucleus via a protein called importin-beta, importin-beta. So that's how all that turns out, okay? That's how this whole thing rolls out to get the transcription factor, the SREBP, into the nucleus. And then, of course, it's going to have to bind to the DNA. And you know how it's going to bind to the DNA because of that basic loop helix, uh, helix, helix-loop-helix, domain, right? And the leucine zipper domain, right? And it's going to bind to the DNA on a specific element. And that element's going to be the SRE, which is the sterile response element, which is the DNA acting cis in front of essentially a portion of the promoter region for the transcription factor to facilitate transcription of whatever gene is going to be turned on. Okay. Got all that? Good. Now, let's stop for a second and remember this. T-cell differentiation is actually regulated by that process I just told you. In fact, it's regulated specifically by the transcription factor SREBP, okay? So SREBP signaling is required, some examples of what I mean by that, for CD8-positive T-cells to acquire the glycolytic phenotype, and that, of course, enables the CD8 T-cells to, d- to become fully effector functional, right? So the intracellular cholesterol pool serves as basically like a metabolic checkpoint for the development and then fully activated effector T-cell population. That's, of course, consistent with a lot of previous work uh, in this area that cholesterol has demonstrated that cholesterol abundance... Is increased in the gamma delta T cells compared to, for example, the alpha beta T cells, which you will recall from my two video lectures is downstream, okay, from T cell differentiation. So that could account for the rapid innate like effector response of the gamma delta T cells, because it's signaling a distinction, signaling a difference, you see, with a sterile, um, on the sterile response element binding protein now starting to function to generate a whole new suite of genes. So this is a transcriptional sequelae, right? And that's how you get T-cell differentiation. So It's very straightforward in terms of um, cellular dynamics, biochemical dynamics. So now, furthermore, um, this concept may even apply to the regulatory T-cells, the Tregs, which are also a, a very important T-cell population. Remember that the CD4 lineage, and they appear to require sufficient metabolic flux through the mevalonic pathway for them to become fully functional so all this you know comes together now <clears throat> the srebp1c gene transcription is activated itself okay so that transcription factor transcription is activated by a liver x receptor or lxr that's modulated of course by insulin polyunsaturated fatty acid, and oxysterol, as we've been saying. The LXR retinoid X receptor heterodimer, we're back to having retinoid heterodimer, here interacts with the LXR responsive element, that's the DNA, located in the SREBP1C promoter. And that's going to initiate the the SREBP gene transcription, making best RNA for that gene. The activation of the farnesoid X receptor known as FXR, induces a small heterodimer partner known as SHP. It induces the expression of that, and that leads to the inhibition of LXR and a reduced SREBP1C expression. So this is a feedback regulation. Now the transcription of the SREBP target genes is tightly regulated by the nuclear SRBP translocation and stabi- stability or stabilization. Now, this is where mTORC comes into play. mTORC1, which of course is a major downstream element of insulin-induced one 13 kinase activity, which is associated with the AKT activity, all of that activates the rsep one depending on an S six kinase one activity. Okay, so that's all downstream from this Insig interaction that occurred, so that you get the mobilization of the protein to begin with. Right now, mTORC also promotes, promotes, excuse me, SREBP uh, via the phosphorylation of another protein called Lipin one. Now that Lipin one is easy to remember because it's a phosphatidic acid phosphatase. Okay, that's going to make a, basically a phosphatidic acid phosphate is going to make what? It's going to make diacylglycerol. glycerol, right? Okay, so dephosphorylated lipin-1 triggers lipin-1 nuclear localization that reduces nuclear SREBP and it alters the localization of the SREBP to the nuclear periphery where it's no longer a transcription factor. So that's a lot of very good intimate detail of how this works, but I want you to understand how you get... For the, get to the level of transcribing the transcription factor, okay, and you can see that insulin plays a role, oxysterols play a role, Polysaturated fatty acids inhibit the LXR, whereas oxysterols activate it. You get the idea what's going on. Now to continue this process, nuclear SREBPs undergo a post-translational modification. Wherein a glycogen synthase kinase three phosphorylates the nuclear uh, SREBP1A on a serine residue, serine canonically 434. That serves as a recognition motif for an FBW7 ubiquitin ligase, and that's going to lead to SREBP1A degradation and AMP kinase directly phosphorylates both the precursor and the nuclear SREBP1C at a serine-372, that decreases SREBP1C cleavage and nuclear translocation. Furthermore, an NAD-dependent deacetylase sirtuin-1 deacetylates and therefore inhibits RSEBP1C transactivation. It does so by enhancing ubiquitinylation, cyclin dependent kinase 8, and its regulatory partner, which of course is cyclin C. And they've been identified to cause the phosphorylation of nuclear SRBP1C, and they conserve threonine residue, that's T402, and that leads to an increased nuclear SRBP1C ubiquitinylation and, yep, degradation. Now, of course, CDK8 and CICC, right? Remember that that's the that's the cyclin C, right? And the cyclin-dependent kinase 8, okay, they are negatively regulated by feeding and by insulin, feeding, for example, a high a carbohydrate meal. So we're almost done. Protein kinase A also regulates nuclear SREP1C stability. Indeed, during fasting, glucagon, which is going to be synthesized from the pancreas, glucagon-induced pKa activation, protein kinase A activation, will stimulate the phosphorylation of the SREP1C serine 308 residue. See, there's a hierarchy of which serines or threonines are being phosphorylated by which kinases, right? Because this is coming from multiple signaling pathways because it's a multivalent, uh, multiple controlled phenomena in the cell because it's so important to control the regulation of cholesterol genesis. You get what I'm saying, it's very critical. Now, you get this PKA activation, stimulus phosphorylation at serine 308 of the SREP1C and SREBP1A at a a serine residue, either 331 or 332, depending. That promotes then, finally, a sumoylation of SREBP1C at a lysine-98 by the mammalian protein inhibitor of activated STAT, okay? And a SUMO-3 E3 ligase. So sumo another covalent modification, right? Of SREBP1C is readily degraded by ubiquitinylation. And that leads to decreased, finally, hepatic lipid metabolism, right? This is how this whole thing comes together. So we went to all of that so that you understand that SREBP2 is going to regulate the following pathways. It's going in this, now this is in mouse models, but it's been shown in humans too. So in using SREBP2, you turn on the following genes, there's transcription of these genes. The thiolase, HMG-CoA synthase, and HMG-CoA reductase. They get you the mevalonic acid, <clears throat> from starting from acetyl-coA to acetoacetylchoyl, HMG-CoA to mevalonate. Then all of these genes also are regulated by SREBP2. Mevalonic kinase, phosphomevalonate kinase, mevalonate pyrophosphate decarboxylase, the GPP synthase, the IPP isomerase, the FPP synthase, and the squalene synthase that gets you all the way down to squalene and cholesterologenesis pathway. And then even the genes squalene epoxidase and lanosterol synthase and a CYP51 using NADPH gets you finally down to cholesterol. Now, that's all regulated by the SREBP transcription factor. Now let's take a look at our SREBP1C. Remember, that's the other form of the transcription factor that's gonna regulate fatty acid synthesis. So you're going to get, first of all, if you have acetate, you'll, you'll, you'll cause a transcription of acetyl-CoA synthetase, that'll make acetyl-CoA, and then acetyl-CoA carboxylase, that's the rate limiting enzyme for genomic fatty acid synthesis making malonyl coa and then, all, then the polyprotein called fatty acid synthase. Also the enzyme long chain fatty acyl elongase which will take the immediate product of de fatty acid synthesis in the mammalian cytoplasm, which is palmitoyl-CoA, and it'll, it'll uh, convert it to sterol CoA because of that initially longase. Then that sterol CoA will meet up with another gene that's activated by SREBP-1c, and that gene product is sterol CoA desaturase, which of course uses NADPH. Uh, NADPH, of course, coming from either the oxidative pentose phosphate pathway or from the malic enzyme. Uh, so you've got two different possibilities, make NADPH from the OPP pathway. And of course, the malic enzyme generates it directly. So you need a lot of NADPH for all these reactions that's coming from that system. Um, anyways, once you make monounsaturated fatty acids, then you will reform fatty acyl-coase. And then from there, you'll go through an acyl-transferase, a glycerol-3-phosphate acyl-transferase. And you'll be on the road for Kennedy pathway, triacylglycerol or phospholipid biosynthesis, starting off with making mono- uh, acylglycerol 3 phosphate or MAG. So SREBP is involved in making fatty acids and S- uh, SREBP-1C for fatty acids. And SREBP-2 is gonna be used for making cholesterol and all those intermediates. So which are the prenal and geranylgeranyl pyrophosphate intermediates. Remember that because it's really important. So in murine cells, TCR stimulation is sufficient to induce the expression of all the genes I just mentioned to you. That includes HMG-CoA synthase and HMG-CoA reductase, which is gonna really flood the de novo MVA cholesterologenesis pathway after initial T-cell activation. For example, by presentation of an antigen to the T-cell receptor, all right? So, induction of that lipogenic program in activated T-cells is gonna occur even at submitogenic concentrations of antigens, and it does not of any antigen, for example, the GP one hundred, and it does not require to get to that point any co-stimulation. Indeed, pyrophosphate synthase condenses them with dMAPP with one IPP molecule to form the geranyl pyrophosphate, as well as geranyl pyrophosphate with a second IPP to form the farnesyl pyrophosphate. So all this is going to be induced just by Having sub myelogenic concentration of a specific antigen called GP100, echoprotein 100. Phosphate is the common substrate for all the myelocytic branches that you can think about, including uh, for, for uh, this pathway. Then, probably cholesterol, all the steroids, ubiquinones, and of course, all the prenylated proteins. Squalene epoxidase catalyzes the first oxygenation step of cell biopsids, and that's a totally different final rate limiting enzyme. And we talked a little bit about that last time. When we are talking about that paper. So um, we're going to stop here, the paper that was talking about the inhibition of furnocent transferase and gerogenerial transferase. Remember when we were talking about leukemias and lymphomas, that was the last video lecture. All right, so I'm going to stop here uh, because I'm out of time. And we're going to follow with this um, lecture probably tomorrow going to complete my discussion of cholesterologenesis. And we're going to get into then a frank discussion of how this relates to T-cell activation. So this is Dr. Dan Guerra saying bye for now.